Hey everybody, I'm Francesca Maxime and this is Wise Girl for March 1st, 2018. And I want to introduce a very special guest that we're gonna be talking with today. It's Dan Shelley. He is the uh, executive director of the Radio and Television Digital News Association, formerly the RTNDA, the Radio and Television uh, News Directors Association. And he's with us to talk about the changing landscape in legacy and digital media, and also um, a recent response that they had to some comments made by the NRA spokesperson last week. So Dan, thank you so much for being here. It is uh, really great to see you. Well, thanks for the invitation. I'm happy to do it. I really appreciate that. Um, I did want to just start with uh, your response to the uh, NRA spokesperson comment, which uh, was from Dana Loesch that says, many in legacy media love mass shootings. Of course, this is in response to what happened in, uh, at Parkland. And she says, you guys love it. And now I'm not saying that you love the tragedy, but I am saying that you love the ratings. Crying white mothers are ratings gold to you and many in the legacy media in the back of the room. You guys had a video response and also you um, created a, you know, a, a script to go along with that. Tell me where that came from and why you came up with this concept. Well, we decided that the best response to this outrageous claim by the NRA, and the NRA, by the way, has been trying to bait the legacy news media uh, for months and has followed up uh, those outrageous comments at uh, the CPAC conference last week with a new video that baits us even more and claims that we never report stories about uh, good guys with guns saving lives, which is on its face, not true. Uh, but we decided to take the high road and instead of uh, directly attacking back, which is what we believe the NRA wants us to do, they want us to engage in a, a, a PR war with them, if you will. Uh, we, we decided to take the high road and we produced a video and uh, a script that explains that, no, journalists, we're your neighbors. We live in the same communities that you do. We attend the same houses of worship. Our kids go to the same schools. Uh, we love our communities just as much as you do. We're your neighbors. Um, and uh, we're affected by tragedy just as much as anyone else. And, and subsequent to to our launching this campaign, which we call hashtag this is journalism, uh, and uh, it's being circulated widely on, on social media. Um, subsequent to that, uh, many individual journalists have spoken out, uh, including some who have covered uh, more than one mass shooting in their career. In fact, within the past few years, more than one mass shooting. Uh, and they say, you have no idea how it affects us. It, obviously, it doesn't affect us, the journalists who cover these things, nearly as much as it does affect the victims uh, and the first responders. We're not claiming that at all. Uh, but it does take a very deep emotional toll on journalists who, who cover this carnage uh, all too frequently in their careers, many of them upon first entering their careers. So the message we want to tell the public is that Journalists are your neighbors. They live in the, in the same community you do, and they love the community just as you do. Uh, and we believe in truth above all else, and we believe in, in uh, shining a light on events in uh, our communities to help you as the citizen, uh, fellow citizens of those communities uh, make more informed decisions about what should be happening in your communities. And that's precisely what I was 
given as my mandate when I started as an intern at Channel 5 in Boston, uh, her station, you know, back in the day. It was, you know, giving people access to information that they need uh, to be informed, to live their daily lives in a way that is, you know, helpful and truthful. And um, it seems that we've come far away from that, but there is a certain uh, idea of if it bleeds, it leads, or something that's very egregious may, you know, be at the top of the newscast. But I think that what people miss, and you can speak to this, is that radio and television are intimate and emotional mediums. And so they are necessarily mediums that um, do storytelling in a way that is three-dimensional and that can really um, touch people in ways that, uh, you know, other kinds of stories that perhaps are more about numbers and things like that may not. Uh, so in that way, it is unique, but that the stories themselves are covered with uh, integrity and with balance uh, that isn't necessarily always what the critics might uh, say, just simply because they're emotional stories. Well, every single day, I think it's important to, to note that every single day in virtually every community across the country, there are local journalists who are uh, doing stories that shine a light on corruption, shine a light on problems in their communities that otherwise would not be uh, known about. Uh, and oftentimes those cases of what I call responsible journalism those cases serve as catalysts for public change, for positive change in those communities. And, and um, you mentioned Hearst in Boston, WCVB, uh, not just Hearst, but uh, all of the large uh, television companies that own local stations across the country. Tegna, uh, I, he I hesitate to mention them because I'm going to leave some out, but uh, Tegna, for example, and Sinclair, for example, and uh, Meredith, and uh, scripts and on and on and on. These, these companies that own local Raycom, they they make huge investments in local investigative units that uh, that provide this kind of information to the public to allow them to make changes uh, necessary in their communities. And you know, having worked for many of those companies that you listed, actually, and um, Nextstar, Nextstar is another one, a, a large one. Yeah, and they have lots of um, affiliates and different uh, TV stations all around the country. You know, there's 200 or so markets uh, that, that are represented, and we're not even touching on radio, um, right. which, is, which is the other uh, side of it. So speaking of ownership, um, uh, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about mm -hmm. also is um, Sinclair, you mentioned. And Sinclair, it used to be that ownership caps, uh, for those who don't know, you know, companies like the ones you mentioned could only own a certain percentage of uh, television stations, broadcast stations in the country. And that uh, it used to be lower than it is now. Uh, right now it's at 39%. And Sinclair is <clears throat> trying to merge with uh, Tribune. The FCC has uh, sort of continue to want to push uh, for this and you know the Department of Justice is sort of looking at it and now saying we're not so sure if that's the best idea and the consumer interest. Can you speak a little bit about why this push for consolidation and what the perils could be for viewers at home that we're trying to inform? Well I, I'm not so bearish on that notion as others might be. Now RTDNA hat, takes no position on uh, matters of, of broadcast regulation as it relates to owner, ownership caps or, or number of stations in a market or 
things of that nature. We're agnostic on, on that point. Uh, from a journalism perspective, though, and we represent both uh, corporate and individual members in broadcast and digital journalism, uh, from a, a journalism perspective, um, there are some pluses and minuses. Um, you will see, I predict, uh, regardless of whether the Sinclair Tribune merger goes through, um, you will see, as a, ne a necessity of, of economics, you will see some contraction uh, in some particularly smaller and small mid-sized markets. Uh, but as I, as I noted earlier, uh, these large companies that uh, own the majority of the local television stations across the country are making massive investments, not just in investigative reporting, but in ethics training and in um, other areas that uh, allow them to be more responsible and more thorough and more accurate uh, in their reporting. And when, as all humans do, uh, journalists in these companies make mistakes, uh, they are very quick to point out those mistakes and, and hold themselves accountable uh, and be more transparent about what it is they're reporting so that the public understands not just what the story is, but why the station did the story and how it did the story. And I think all of those things are, are very positive, uh, and, and I think they'll, they'll get even better as uh, consolidation continues to occur to the extent that the government allows it to. Okay, so I understand that you're agnostic about this, but there has been some pushback from folks that um, have said, you know, there are, there seems to be a commingling of politics and ownership, and to the degree in which that there's a, um, uh, a push to include across the board with uh, stations that are in a particular, you know, corporate entities, uh, ownership or whatever, uh, what seems to be a political ideology, could that be troubling? Uh, could that be something that as a viewer or as a consumer or even as a journalist, as somebody who works for a particular entity and you're sort of saying, hmm, I'm supposed to be representing both sides of this equation, but I'm having to do a story that seems to be more in favor of a particular candidate, for example, than in another one. I find that this is a journalistic quandary that I'm in. How do I approach that as a journalist if I were a RTDNA, RTDNA represented journalist? Well, uh, so long as there's complete transparency, there's no problem in my mind. Um, you know, if, if, uh, if a company uh, directs a local station to run a certain story or commentary, uh, editorial, in, uh, th those things need to be labeled as such so that the audience understands that, okay, this isn't a news story per se. This is the, the presenter's uh, opinion or point of view on the subject. And you're touching on what I think is one of the biggest problems today in terms of the public's trust and deteriorating trust in, in the news media. And that is the public's conflation in too many cases of opinion media with what I, again, call responsible journalism. Uh, look at the cable networks, for example. Uh, on Fox and MSNBC in particular, uh, you have real, legitimate, hardworking journalists who are reporting facts and breaking huge stories. Uh, and, uh, you know, they, they seek to do what journalists are supposed to do, and that is find what Carl Bernstein calls the best obtainable version of the truth and share that with their audiences. Uh, then, predominantly in the early morning and in prime time, those networks have opinion hosts who take the work of the legitimate journalists at the, their networks uh, and, 
and use that to inform and expand upon their personal points of view about the issues of the day. Sean Hannity is not a journalist, but he uses information from the journalists at Fox News to, to help formulate his arguments. And too many people believe that Sean Hannity, what they hear on Sean Hannity or on MSNBC, Rachel Maddow, uh, that that's the news. Uh, and there is news in their shows, but they take that news and, and use it to, uh, to, as I said, form their, their points of view and express them to their audiences. And too many in the public can conflate those two notions and believe that uh, news comes from Sean Hannity and Rachel Maddow, when in fact it comes from the, the, the real journalists at those networks. So two points there. One is about um, the sort of transparency around, for example, uh, an editorial or a must run, they call it. I know uh, when it comes to certain clips and pieces that they may have uh, for certain station ownership groups. Uh, for example, Sinclair runs a Boris Epstein uh, commentary and that goes across every uh, station that they have. And then there's the also part about Sean Hannity and the difference between news and programming at a place like Fox News or M MSNBC. So that's the, uh, the local version of it, which would be that Sinclair piece where they can put that package in that is an insert that is um, perhaps, uh, you know, uh, ideologically motivated. And then the other, which is more of the news piece. The question that I have for you, though, is to what degree are the networks or the local station groups required to make it clear? Because I think that, as you said, transparency is key. When I interviewed for Fox at Fox, for example, I remember that there wasn't a very clear delineation about this is programming and this is news and internally it's well known, but it's not very well known to the public and it doesn't seem to be reinforced on a regular basis that, you know, from these hours with these hosts, with these shows, we're doing news, but Fox and Friends, for example, is under the programming department. Well, ask Shep Smith or ask Brett Baer or ask... Chris Wallace at Fox News if they're journalists. And they will tell you that they are journalists. They're not commentators. Uh, I visited uh, a few months ago the Fox News Bureau in Washington. And one of the journalists uh, in that bureau pulled me aside and said, listen, I don't want anything to do with Sean Hannity. I don't want anything to do with Fox and Friends. Let them do their thing. Let us do our thing and uh, the world will be fine. Mm -hmm. So uh, even the journalists, at, particularly at Fox in the Washington Bureau, some of them, uh, and I, I'm sure this is true at NBC and MSNBC, um, you know, they're, they're very careful uh, to maintain that internal separation between fact and opinion. The journalists well, are, but what about the right. people at home who don't know how to suss it out? That's the problem. That, that's, that's the problem I was speaking to. Yeah, whose responsibility is that? Uh, it, I think some of the responsibility is with the journalists and the networks and the local stations that, uh, that do these must-runs that you referenced uh, by providing greater transparency. Uh, but I also think news consumers have a lot of responsibility in this equation. Uh, it, it's up to the discerning viewer to be discerning, right? It's up to the viewer to be able to understand or comprehend that, okay, I'm watching Sean Hannity. These are Sean Hannity's opinions and views. This is his, uh, we're looking at the world through his 
lens and his biases. Uh, and when they're watching uh, Chris Wallace on, on Fox News Sunday, okay, this is, a, this is a news program. This isn't an opinion program like, like Sean Hannity on weeknights. Uh, so, uh, and, and even Chris Wallace has said that publicly. Uh, and there have been uh, uh, widely reported stories of journalists, particularly at Fox News, also the, uh, in, in the print side at the Wall Street Journal, lashing out at uh, their executives for blurring the lines between, uh, for, for the, the editorial page of the, uh, of, of the, uh, the journal and the primetime shows on Fox, uh, bashing the journalism that the responsible journalists at those networks are doing. Mm -hmm. uh, they've spoken out quite publicly uh, against that. And I think that's a very good thing. You know, it's it to me. It seems though that with digital and with the rise in first cable and now digital, that there is a conflagration, if you will, of everybody can have an opinion because everybody does have their soapbox on Twitter, and so societally there is a, a flood of information that previously wasn't there that was curated. Uh, I know when I grew up, you would have the six o'clock news and the six thirty network news, and that was what you had until eleven at you know a half an hour of news, and that was that. There wasn't. 24-hour cycle that needed to be filled by, as we call, talking heads, and then also by um, whatever other kinds of news programming uh, has been put in place. For example, I know Sunbeam's, uh, you know, uh, station in Boston keeps adding more news programs uh, because they've don't have a network affiliation right now, so they're actually adding more news programs. So those right. are trusted journalism programs, right? Journalists working for those stations, and yet at the same time they have more hours to fill. Uh, and so I guess my question to you is, in this, in this societal shift where people are, you know, having more access to a diversity and a range of opinions and of uh, different ideas and perspectives, you're saying that the onus is on the consumer. But of course, we've heard, you know, the cries of fake news and people are, you know, sort of coming out with these uh, allegations that are discrediting the fourth estate, the journalistic estate. And so it seems as though there's no one place that people can go to to find out how to be discerning. Where would I start if I were just someone who was at home watching these different things and I didn't just want to be in an echo chamber? Well, that's the problem. Too many people want to be in the echo chamber and want to get their news just from the sources uh, that, that tend to uh, already share uh, their viewpoint on what the uh, what life is like and what politics are like today. Um, uh, I said the onus is on us too, but it's also on the on, on the news consumer. So we we share that responsibility uh, to make those uh, determinations. I would I would strongly urge uh, the public to get out of their comfort zones, and not, you know if they're a Fox News viewer to flip the dial and watch, uh, that's an old expression, flip the dial, uh, and, uh, and, and watch a little bit of uh, MSNBC once in a while, or CNN, or watch uh, the network evening newscasts, uh, or the network's digital extensions, uh, and get different uh, points of view or different types of, uh, get journalism facts from different outlets so that they, they have a well-rounded view uh, of what's going on in the world. Uh, you also mentioned this fake news stuff. Uh, I mean, fake, the, the fake news allegations came along long before the current administration in the White House. Uh, but that administration has exploited it 
uh, in an attempt, a blatant attempt to discredit uh, responsible journalism that it either doesn't like or it finds inconvenient to its uh, political agenda. Uh, and that's very unfortunate because it's, it's had the effect uh, of empowering, a lot of people say it's, it's, it's a dog whistle for, uh, for uh, certain segments of the, of the population. I say it's a, it, it's a bullhorn. Uh, there, there's no subtlety about it. Uh, uh, cries of fake news and journalists are enemies of the American people. Um, those have em emboldened and empowered people who either don't like or don't understand the news media to lash out against individual journalists, often in harsh ways. Uh, in 2017 alone, 44 uh, attacks were documented on journalists across the country, mostly local journalists uh, and mostly independent journalists. 30 of those uh, attacks occurred uh, at, uh, uh, against journalists who were covering civil unrest from Inauguration Day uh, in January of 2017, uh, all the way through Charlottesville, uh, St. Louis, Minneapolis, Nashville, uh, Berkeley, California. Uh, I, I could go on and on, but uh, too often there are physical attacks on journalists, and too often they're committed, uh, I won't say mostly, I can't make that claim empirically, but often they are committed by people who have been emboldened by these cries of fake news and enemy of the American people. I mean, we live in a, in a society today where some people find it not just permissible, but they relish the notion that they can wear a t-shirt with the words written on the back, rope, tree, journalist, some assembly required. Right, and that gets to the whole point of the increasing peril that journalists face when they're trying to simply do their jobs, which is to investigate and to tell the truth and uncover and then share and disseminate that information through vetted and reputable outlets. And so the question is really, I think, becoming about a cultural shift that has seemed to just increase toward uh, more of this echo chamber, you know, feeling that is actually putting people's uh, lives at stake. And at what point, I mean, you're doing what you can to, you know, help protect journalists. Uh, you know, you offer a lot of uh, resources available through RTDNA in terms of uh, how to access uh, FOIA requests and how to, uh, you know, go through what it might be to actually be at a, a rally or at a, a you know, a, a, an environment that might be dangerous and, you know, some of the legal rights that you have should you ever, you know, encounter any issues, which is, which is great to have as a resource, but everybody seems to be wanting to exercise their, uh, you know, their right to free speech. And at, and, and at a certain level, it seems to be directly in conflict with the safety of a lot of the people who are out there trying to get out accurate factual information that um, our elected officials, our elected officials and our representatives uh, are generating. Yeah, we also, by the way, compelled Walmart, the nation's largest retailer, to stop selling that T-shirt I referenced mm -hmm. uh, last fall um, because it openly advocates, in, in a not very subtle way, the lynching of, of journalists. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, uh, insert any other profession for the word journalist on the back of that T-shirt. Uh, rope tree teacher, some assembly required. Rope tree the hatred. rabbi, some assembly required. Imagine the universal outrage. So why is it okay to say that about journalists? We think oh, well, it's not. You're a journalist, so why do you think the hatred? Why do I think they hate us? 
yeah, where where is the hatred coming from? What's hope to what's what's hoping to be accomplished with that kind of a, an ideology or slogan? Well, some some have told me that they think it's a joke, that the T-shirt is a joke, and that it's funny and it's humorous. Um, but ask those people, those journalists who were the victim of those 44 physical assaults uh, in uh, 2017. And there have already, already been uh, at least uh, three documented cases of journalists assaulted uh, across the country in 2018. And we're just two months into the year, starting the third month. Um, I think that what this fake news, enemy of the American people, um, bully pulpit, has, uh, or, or those words having been emanated from some of the most powerful bully pulpits in the, in, in the country, uh, I, I think that has empowered people who had this deep-seated, uh, below-the-surface dislike uh, for the media, uh, exacerbated by opinion hosts, mostly on the right, but also some on the left. Um, they, they feel emboldened to, to bring those feelings to the surface. Uh, and it's uh, it's it's very damaging to democracy, and and they don't realize it. Well, you just said the 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 really the upshot of it is that it's damaging to democracy in the sense that um, you know journalists have always been the fourth estate, you know, keeping the uh, you know speaking truths to power, keeping those who are in positions of power accountable for that which, uh, you know, is done and said. But now I wonder to what degree people are uh, intimidated by some of these tactics and perhaps not entering the field of journalism or not even challenging some of their bosses or supervisors or networks or corporate entities in ways that they might normally do because they want to be able to receive some of the basic protections on the job, for example, and don't necessarily want to go against perhaps an ideology of the, you know, ownership or leanings of the, of their, of who pays them. I'm, I'm, I am not aware of any journalist. I, I can't make the blanket statement that this has never happened, but I'm not aware of any journalist. And in my personal experience of, of, uh, uh, a very long career as a journalist. I have never attended an editorial meeting. Uh, I have never uh, been called to the boss's office and been instructed on what to report, what not to report, uh, what political angle to take on a story. That stuff just doesn't come up. It's not part of the equation in newsrooms across the country. Uh, and as for uh, the the effect that this uh, caustic environment against journalism today, uh, in terms of, of what that effect is, I think it's been a very positive effect, to be honest with you. I, I think that um, many journalists have heeded the call uh, for the, 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 that I have made and others have made, uh, specifically the only antidote to attacks on journalism is more and better journalism. Uh, and we've seen news organizations step up. We've seen journalists step up. Uh, I, again, I can't, I can't claim this as an empirical fact, but uh, I sense, uh, particularly among young people, uh, the desire to get into journalism now because it's under attack. Uh, and I think that uh, whenever whatever this is is over, this environment, uh, I think you're going to see a resurgence uh, in interest in entering the journalism field. You're going to see a, uh, a resurgence in public trust of, of the media, uh, not seen since the days following Watergate. Mm -hmm. 
well, there's certainly a lot of people who are doggedly doing their 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 job and 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 their role as journalists to try and bring out the truth so that um, we will remain informed. You spoke of younger folks. Uh, as we get to younger and younger uh, people who can be old enough to be journalists and employed as journalists, um, more of those people represent diverse uh, ethnic groups. And uh, as our country gets, uh, you know more filled out with its rainbow colors, um, you know, our, our on-air or our reportorial, whether it's print or digital or radio or, you know, broadcast or whatever um, media, also <clears throat> would necessarily then reflect, I would think, the diversity inherent in the population at large. Can you talk a little bit about why and how the image and the background of the storyteller matters and what goes through Hiring managers' minds, usually I've heard, you know, we hire the best person who is most accurate with their storytelling. But on the other hand, um, also the perspective that a person brings as a journalist, although it can be objective, uh, what a person sees can be influenced by their history and their own personal uh, experiences. That's, that, that's absolutely correct. And RTDNA strongly encourages newsrooms across the country uh, to make sure that the composition of their newsroom, in other words, the people in their newsroom, reflect the community in which they live and reflect the society in which we live. Uh, because people from different ethnic back backgrounds, different sexual orientations, uh, they do bring a perspective and a context based on their life experiences uh, that doesn't necessarily, necessarily change the facts of the stories they report, but it allows that news organization to have a, a, uh, a variety of viewpoints and life experiences from which to draw uh, as they uh, create their editorial philosophies and, and make their not just story decisions, you know, what are we going to cover today, but how are we going to cover those stories? And, and I think it's critical that newsrooms reflect the society in which we live through their composition. Uh, a lot of the time, you know, it used to be that when I was uh, first a reporter and an anchor, actually, it was in Binghamton when I started on the air as a weekend anchor, um, what you were asked to do and what you were asked to wear was not so much uh, influenced by local fashion trends as it was uh, what seemed to be sort of what a man would consider a three-piece suit, you know, it was just sort of uh, IBM uh, you know, pinstripe, navy pinstripe suit kind of de rigueur uh, uh, outfits. And now it seems that women in particular uh, are asked to fit into a certain mold, if you will, have a certain body type, have a certain hairstyle, have a certain look. And I've heard it said, you know, we're, we're from television news directors anyway, that we're looking for consistency. But at the same time, I also wonder, uh, as people and the audience uh, in the U.S. changes, and women are of different sizes and different representations and different ethnicities, to what extent uh, can, they, can that be reflected in what people see, whether it's digital or broadcast or whatever? Well, I... I I, what, you're, what you're talking about is, is the, the old Ken and Barbie uh, adage, you know, uh, your news anchors have to be Ken and Barbie dolls. Uh, and, and I think that is so Mad Men out, uh, referring to the TV show, outdated uh, today. Uh, and uh, I, I, I just think to the extent that any news director makes hiring decisions based on, uh, my God, 
uh, how long and uh, sexy the legs of their female anchor is, uh, that's just outrageous and unacceptable, especially in today's environment with the Me Too movement and all that. Uh, and uh, so, you know, we, we don't condone uh, at all this image that the, the people who appear on camera, for example, uh, have to look like Ken and Barbie. There's another old adage uh, among radio guys, well, yeah, I have a face for radio, meaning that I'm not attractive enough to be on television. Well, that's, that's ridiculous uh, because good journalism is good journalism and it doesn't matter what the person looks like. It shouldn't matter what the person looks like who, who uh, develops and delivers that journalism to the public. Okay, we'll see if news directors and other hiring managers can, can integrate a little bit more of, of that. Because I do think that it is a slippery slope. I think that there's a certain, um, you know, having been in that field and on the air for a variety of different corporate owners and, and worked for a variety of different folks, uh, I do still think that it is, um, it is more of a challenge, I think, for women in particular than it is for men. No question. Uh, and I, and I do think that sometimes the journalism unfortunately gets lost in the mix because there is more of a precedence that is more of a priority paid on, will this be eye candy, you know, or will this, because we're talking about viewers in, in broadcast, although now we're talking about clicks and we're talking about different things with digital um, that don't pertain to, uh, to the eyeballs. Um, but it is a way of, of trying to figure out who's the best person for the job. And like you say, increasing diversity can, can certainly help. Uh, the other thing I wanted to, to ask you about was that move from uh, you know, broadcast to cable and then cable to digital and how the rise of the 24-hour news cycle has really influenced uh, the way in which uh, people not only consume news, but how news is produced and the ways in which um, perhaps sometimes the facts get lost in translation, or do they? Um, I, I, You know, the rush to be first. Right. Uh, you know, it's very interesting. I, I, Tom Brokaw has spoken a lot about the differences between covering Watergate uh, 40 years ago, 45 years ago, uh, and covering the, the current Washington situation with the Mueller investigation and all of that. Uh, and he made a very interesting point. And he, sa uh, he said, back in the Watergate days, we didn't have this, uh, there's a new deadline every minute, uh, 24 hours a day. Uh, we had time to report more thoroughly. And we had one, one or maybe two deadlines a day, the, the e network evening newscast and then the morning show, uh, the Today Show in the case of NBC. Uh, and, and now he says, you know, you, you appear on camera, you, you, you do reporting, you get the story, you get the information, you appear on camera on NBC News, and then someone flips a switch and, and you're immediately on MSNBC, and th then the cycle starts all over again. And, and so uh, I, I hate this expression because it's, it's so trite, but it's so true. It is what it is. I mean, you're, we're, we're not going to stop uh, the, the new developments in technology. We're not going to stop the changes in audience consumption habits uh, because there are so many platforms now on which people can, can consume information uh, and enter entertainment for that matter. Uh, so we're, we're not going to change that. It's, it's, it's going to keep uh, increasing in, instead of uh, going back to the quote-unquote good old days. Uh, and, and I think journalists have to adapt to that and have to be even more careful 
that, that they get the facts right uh, and they present uh, the facts accurately. Um, and, and I think it's also uh, important that news consumers, uh, as I said before, use a variety of sources to get their information and not just uh, uh, be part of this tribalist movement that's, that seems to be going on more so now than ever before, where they get their news and information only from the sources that they tend to agree with politically or ideologically. Mm. You know, um, the rise in social media as a, you know, it, it, it keeps changing the ways in which uh, news is delivered, journalistic news, sound journalistic news is even delivered through those social media platforms. Forget about bots and fake news and whatever other, uh, you know, sort of conspiracy theories and things like that out there that seem to be um, quite readily available, frankly. Um, but that the social media companies, the tech companies, were not ever put under the same kind of federal regulations that the uh, broadcast companies and you know legacy media were when it comes to delivering news content. Can you talk a little bit about what that means and and, and what might be helpful uh, going forward in terms of whether it's regulations or whether it's having more actual journalists or or news people working in those tech companies, because we're talking about algorithms and things at Google and Facebook and whatnot that are really shifting what it is that people actually do have access to and see. Forget about the content itself. Right. Uh, RTDNA is first and foremost a First Amendment advocacy organization. Okay. So in principle, we oppose any regulation of any uh, news content anywhere. Um, and obviously newspapers have no regulations governing their content. Uh, broadcast used to because broadcasters uh, uh, transmit uh, over frequencies that uh, from for which they are licensed to do so by the federal government. Um, but not so much anymore. There's, there's very little, if any, uh, federal regulation of content of newscasts. Uh, the federal government doesn't regulate, uh, to a large extent, cable, uh, and it doesn't regulate uh, online or other digital platforms. And uh, in principle, we don't think that regulation is a good thing to do when it comes to content. <clears throat> How, that being said, uh, I think if there are cases where large uh, digital companies who do have so much power and influence over the information that, that is disseminated, uh, abuse that power to the point where, and I'm not saying this occurred, but to the point where it, let's say, hypothetically, affects the outcome of a U.S. presidential election, uh, then I think there is a, a civic responsibility if they don't self-regulate in some way and make, make uh, meaningful changes to their algorithms or whatever to, to try to uh, avoid real fake news from influencing too many people, uh, then something must be done about that. Mm -hmm. And do you feel, although I'm not sure that they really want to do this, but do you feel that it would behoove, for example, a Facebook to uh, have a news division in much the same way that NBC has a news division, that CBS has a news division? Um, do you feel as though that if they created and generated their own content uh, and had their own network, so to speak, uh, that that would be beneficial in terms of weeding out 
that which otherwise gets filtered in through their system of dissemination. I'm not sure about that, though I, uh, as, as a general rule, I think the more journalism, the better. So if Facebook were to start a news division, so to speak, I think that would, on its face, be a good thing. Uh, Yahoo started uh, getting into the news business, though uh, the success of, of, of its news organization has been called into question uh, lately by Katie Couric, who was their biggest uh, name and face and who left and now doesn't have very nice things to say about uh, about them. Um, so I think more journalism in principle is a good thing. Uh, but I also think Facebook has bizarrely, in my personal opinion, not speaking on behalf of RTDNA for just a moment, uh, in my personal opinion, Facebook has bizarrely claimed that they're not a news publisher. They are. It's, it's curated content from other sources, uh, but they are a news publisher. Uh, and they need to fess up to that, and they need to act accordingly uh, to, to do a better job to ensure that they're not spreading disinformation and false information and uh, inaccurate personal attacks on candidates or anyone. Mm -hmm. and, and, I, and as I said, I'm not sure that that's the business that they want to admit to being in uh, because they've relied more on the idea that they're sharing and that they're connecting as opposed to aggregating and, and like you said, you know, curating and, and, and actually publishing. Um, along those lines, we talked a little bit about uh, of the diversity in media. You mentioned Katie Carrick and what are people's attention span these days? Because she was doing essentially broadcast work, broadcast quality work, interviews with heavy hitters that would not get really pumped up in their algorithm for Yahoo, she would claim that uh, weren't on the front page, that weren't really seen. But journalistically, in our circles, if we are, you know, legacy media folks, you would see something like that on a 60 Minutes, perhaps, or you would see the kind of pieces like that on uh, on broadcast. Are, is there... Is there something happening to people's attention spans in general that prohibits them from being able to actually consume and ingest more of the complicated kind of stories that journalists have typically told? The short answer is yes. I mean, there are so many sources of information now. I tend to believe it's a good thing because it gives people the power uh, to check uh, the veracity of the information they're receiving on one platform uh, by looking at other platforms uh, to, to weigh the information from platform A against information they get from platforms B, C, and D. Um, so I think it, it, generally it's a good thing, but the extent to which uh, the attention spans of, of many news consumers uh, allow them to do that, uh, I, I, I I'm, I'm concerned about that. I, I think that the attention span is, is not as long as it needs to be or could be or should be. And do you think the quality of the news that's delivered on, say, the evening network newscasts is degrading because of that? No, I think it's better. So better quality, even though the attention spans are going down. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, th this is another uh, cliche, but it, it, it fits. Pardon me for using it, but it, it, it's, it's very relevant to what you just said content is king. Mm -hmm. And if you produce high quality content, uh, in this case, journalism, uh, then you're, you're going to be successful every time. And look at 60 Minutes. You, men you mentioned 60 Minutes. Uh, they've been around 50 years now. Uh, look at, uh, uh, and, and, and they have 
some of the highest ratings on television, certainly the highest rated news program on television. Um, look at Meet the Press, which is celebrating its 70th year. The longest running show in television history is a Sunday morning news analysis and interview program. Uh, and it provides valuable context to what's going on, not just in Washington, but around, uh, around the country and around the world. Uh, and it gets relatively high ratings. Uh, Face the Nation on CBS, uh, This Week on ABC, uh, and all the other shows that are out there, State of the Union on CNN, et cetera. Um, quality wins every time, and good content, in this case, good journalism, wins every time, mm -hmm. regardless and, of attention span. And who else, you mentioned a few of those shows, who else do you think is doing um, excellent journalism right now, either in the print sphere or uh, an online digital uh, sphere that isn't a legacy media? Uh, I think uh, uh, Daily Beast does a great job. I think uh, BuzzFeed has a, a, a formidable, responsible journalism uh, outlet uh, or, or business unit, if you will. It's not just listicles anymore. It's the real, tough reporting. Uh, I'm very impressed with the work of Vice News uh, and uh, the fact that Shane Smith and his co-founder and other executives there uh, bravely send their their crews to places that other news organizations would dare not go, uh, such as Aleppo. Uh, even Netflix is getting into the journalism business now with uh, uh, the White Helmets, which won an Oscar about uh, the, the, the citizen uh, rescuers, first responders in, in uh, war-ravaged Syria. Um, so th there are a lot of emerging uh, not-legacy uh, media organizations, news media organizations that are doing outstanding journalism. And the New York Times, uh, Brian Seltzer reported, is actually looking to put together what they said might be a half an hour show right? Uh, using their reporters, uh, but that would be a broadcast show. Yep. So um, it seems like there's tendrils uh, on that everywhere. We also know, <clears throat> as I mentioned before we got on the air here, that um, Unity, which is the organization that sort of assimilated the National Association of Black Journalists, National Association of Hispanic Journalists, Asian American Journalism Association. Native uh, American Journalists. Right, uh, NLGJ, everybody came together. Um, but now that has dissolved as of a couple days ago. They decided it wasn't financially feasible anymore, but it was an attempt to take uh, people of color, you know, uh, different voices and amass them together. Uh, in terms of conventions and uh, networking and that kind of thing, and also sort of alert hiring managers that this is a voice that may not be coming from, uh, you know, sort of a, a more dominant culture representative, if you will. Uh, and the face of the nation, as we we're saying, is changing. What do you think about that? Is that a good move, or did it, it does it need it anymore, or not? Well, I think the the reasons for the the dissolution of, of Unity Journalists of Color, which was the full name of the organization, um, I think I, I think it, its dissolution has been coming for some time, and uh, and it's not reflective of uh, any point of view that diversity is less important. It's it's reflective more of the fact that the individual member organizations of what was Unity Journalists of Color uh, have grown so much and have become so viable on their own throughout the, 
the past several years that they really didn't see uh, financially and in some cases politically the need to uh, form uh, a, a coalition of those groups. Uh, the main function of which, by the way, was to have a convention every four years, usually a presidential, well, always a presidential election year, uh, so that all of the journalism uh, groups, uh, ethnic journalism groups, diversity journalism groups, I call them, could get together in one place at one time, hear from the presidential candidates, uh, discuss ideas, uh, and provide one-stop shopping for uh, news uh, organizations to recruit uh, journalists of, of color um, uh, to to work in their newsrooms. Um, but, but, you know, National Association of Black Journalists, Hispanic Journalists, Asian American Journalists, Native American Journalists, uh, and even uh, NLGJA, the Gay and Lesbian Journalists and Transgender Journalists, uh, they all now uh, are, are very strong organizations in their own right. Mm -hmm. um, RTDNA partnered with Unity from its inception more than 20 years ago uh, and uh, worked very closely with them. Uh, up until the end, uh, we now work very closely and partner with uh, the individual uh, ethnic or diversity uh, news uh, associations uh, to make sure that their voices are heard, that our members uh, are interacting with their members uh, in ways that, that promote uh, more diverse newsrooms and, and more diverse broadcast and digital reporters and editors and managers. <clears throat> we'll wrap up soon, but uh, along those lines, I mean, when I started, you didn't make a lot of money when you were, uh, you know, in Me too. <laughs> you know, and, and even if you progressed to a sort of mid-level or decent, you know, career, you still didn't often make as much money as people thought that you that you did, because there's often the headline that says, uh, you know, Megyn Kelly signs a $20 million contract or, um, you know, so-and-so, uh, you know, has a $25 million contract or $18 million contract or whatever. Uh, but a lot of the folks who are starting are making 17 grand, 20 grand, 24 grand a year. They're not making uh, 50 grand, 75 grand or six figures even. And it can be very difficult, I think, for people from certain backgrounds to be able to even get into this uh, as a profession because of the fact that starting salaries are so low. Uh, people who may want to be journalists that really are having a hard time being able to reconcile, being able to afford being a journalist. Can you speak to that? Well, I, I, I've lived that story, right? I, when, when I started, and I won't tell you what year, but when I started, I was making less than minimum wage. Um, and uh, I, I would just say this. Uh, if, if you're considering getting into journalism just for the money, don't. Because that's not what journalism is about. Journalism is a calling. Journalism is uh, it, it, it's something that you should get into um, because you want to make a difference in, the, in your community and in the world. Because you want to uh, report facts. Because you want to tell stories that people need to know. Um, and, and because you, you feel this, this value uh, in, in, in your very being that makes you want to help provide information and context and perspective 
uh, to the public. That's why you should get into journalism, not for the money. Uh, if you're successful, the money will come. Um, and the harder you work, the money will come. Uh, the better you are at your craft and the more uh, time you spend improving your uh, abilities and skills, uh, success will come. But don't get into it for the money. Get into it because it's a calling that you personally feel. And do you feel like people need to go to jur journalism school to learn the tools of the trade now that yes. are not uh, yes. the ones that were needed 20 years ago? Yes. Uh, most of the journalism schools, uh, most of the best journalism schools uh, uh, around the country, and I'm very familiar with, with many of them, uh, they, uh, they are doing an outstanding job of training journalists with the skills that they need and the tools that they need to be successful in their careers. Uh, I recently wrote a piece uh, for the uh, Association of Education and Journalism and Mass Communication uh, that uh, urged journalism school professors around the country to um, not just arm their students who are graduating with uh, the tools and skills they need, but with uh, a sense of what the real world is going to be like when they get out into it and, and begin their career as journalists. Um, and, and I also uh, believe that, that journalism schools can, and in many cases are, uh, do a great job of, of, uh, of explaining to their students what I just said a moment ago, that journalism is a calling. Uh, and that you do it because you want to help your community. Uh, and um, the short answer to your question is yes. I think they should go to journalism school, um, and they should pick uh, a, a very good accredited journalism program uh, that uh, will help best prepare them for, for the, what they're going to encounter in the quote-unquote real world. Yeah, because... Um... <laughs> Live shots at 2 a.m. aren't on the list of things that you would ever no. think you would need to do. I can tell you that. Yes. But, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a brave new world out there. Dan Shelley, uh, Executive Director of RTDNA, thank you so much for joining me today to discuss all of this and more. Uh, again, really appreciated the um, video and the statement that you put together last week, your thoughts on the FCC mergers and um, sort of the state of journalism today and why it's needed more than ever. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. My pleasure. Take care. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.